Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and I have the pleasure today of being joined by Mr. Glenn Fleischman. Hi, Glenn. Hello there. How are you, sir? I am um, euphoric, exhausted, and great. Thank you very much. And we're going to find out why as we go on to the show today. But Glenn, what do you like to be known for? Oh, that's a great question. I like to be known for telling stories that people want to read. <laughs> Which currently means I'm the editor and publisher of the magazine and an electronic periodical. And uh, that's what I spend most of my time doing now, although I still have other freelance assignments and a podcast of my own and other things. But the magazine is where I put most of my effort. So typically when um, you, you are, this is the first time you're on the show. So thank you and welcome to, to the Command Space family. Yeah, you are now you are now a, a part of um, I typically go through uh, somebody's history, um, what got them to the place that they're at, and and then talk about all the product, like sort of the projects that they do and the products that they've made. Um, but this time, I started my preparation just with taking notes and writing out an outline and questions about the magazine. So that's and basically, I've written enough here <laughs> that I know is going to cover a show. Since you've taken over the helm of the magazine, and we'll come to a bit about how that came to be in a moment. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But just very quickly, before um, we jump into that, can you give, like, just for anybody that might not know you, um, how, how sort of, who, who, who is Glenn? What, what, that's you know, a great what do you question. do, and, I... and how did you get to where you are now? I have many people from many times. Um, I'm the Highlander, actually. It turns out, and um, no, what I my background is in graphic design. I was I, I this is a running joke on my own podcast. I apparently said it several times without realizing it in early episodes, and now I get razzed about it. But um, I was trained as a typesetter. I, I was one of the last people in my generation, I think, to learn how to. Um, to typeset on not on old metal equipment, but on the optical digital, which was the transition stuff between metal and uh, uh, desktop publishing, like computer-based Mac desktop publishing. And um, so I started in high school in my high school newspaper, and I've I've always worked on school papers, and then that evolved into sort of a side thing of writing for um, you know real publications, trade publications, and then mainstream you know national international publications. Um, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer that 's where my passion lay and I got an undergraduate degree in art and I studied graphic design and I thought I would go and work for a studio but instead, it turns out i 'm much better at programming and writing i um, i 'm a computer hardware whisperer I can touch hardware and it's um it 's like having a superpower. Um, many people listening to the show probably have the same superpower, but i 'm the guy who always sets the digital watches i don 't read a manual. I just look at them and they tell me what to do and uh, <laughs> I can manipulate hardware and software i 'm not much of a programmer, but I can program enough to build systems and um I'd always been writing along the same way. So in the end, I found my, I just, I, I can design, but I'm not a fantastic designer. I'm competent in a lot of ways, but not fantastic. I'm very happy with what I can do as a writer. And um, I'm modestly happy with what I can manage to hack out as a programmer. And so that's where my direction took me was, was building websites and, the early days in the ni- 1994, I started a web hosting company, development company. Uh, worked at Amazon, consulted for Powell's Books, was involved in early computer conferences, that kind of thing, and eventually settled more into the writing gig. And have been freelance writing uh, since 1994. And um, 
have really never had a job since about 1997. I left Amazon after six months there. The company was going down in flames. It was a chaotic mess. I got out when the getting was good. I don't regret it. <laughs> and uh, it recovered from the low point. And I've mostly been a writer ever since. And, and unemployed or self-employed as you choose to characterize that. So some time ago, um, and I'll put a link in this to the show notes, um, Marco Arment was a guest on this show. And I think it was the second time that he'd been on, on uh, Command Space. And we spoke about the magazine, which was a publication that he had launched to the world one week after the first time I had him on the show, which was uh, quite, quite amusing. And we spoke about you know, what the magazine was and where that came from and all of that sort of stuff. However, now you, Mr. Fleischman, are the proprietor <laughs> of the magazine. How did your journey start with Marco and the magazine? Uh, it's, gosh, you know, it's, it's really, I think, quite interesting. I see you just had Andy Bayo on, whose name I finally learned to pronounce correctly after many attempts. And uh, Mr. Bayo uh, is, um, and uh, Andy McMillan, who put on the XOXO festival that we were both at this year. Um, I, I would say the path started with that in part. I was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with myself in 2012 because I was I was working on some projects that I've been involved with for a long time. Some things I was doing were sort of coming to an end. And uh, I worked on Tidbits, the Mac publication, for uh, many years. I built the the content management system. I, am the, I was the programmer for it and was writing for it. And I'd sort of reached the point where I didn't want to run systems anymore. And the things they needed were beyond my programming abilities, I would say. I think we reached a cost-benefit analysis. And I was convinced they needed to find you know, a quote-unquote real programmer, someone who does it for a living, even if this was a part-time thing for them. And I was trying to figure out what, what I did next after tidbits, after <clears throat> um, some long-running things I was involved with, some of, the, some of the stuff I've done for years, like I write books in the Take Control series uh, for tidbits publishing. Um, some of the books I was doing, it started to sell more poorly because the topics I was interested in weren't matched as well with our audience and uh, it wasn't dire but I thought you know I, I need some kind of change um, and um, then I went on Jeopardy and won two episodes which was good that's part of change <laughs> it was aw- so I taped in August of 2012 knew I'd won shows didn't air to October but I knew money was was coming from that um, I uh, went to XOXO in September 2012 and had my head totally torn off about all the possibilities that of things that I could do that I wasn't doing, even though I thought I was in charge of my career and knew what I wanted to do. And then in October 2012, I went to the Singleton uh, Deux conference in Montreal, run by Guy English and his colleagues, and uh, met Marco there and, again, had this great experience of just seeing all of this potential for doing things on my own, uh, even though I thought I had already been doing things on my own. Um, so that all set the stage. Oh, and before that, in the middle of summer, I'd had a, a failed Kickstarter. I was working on a Kickstarter to fund a book that would be a book about how to do successful Kickstarters, and it didn't fund well enough, so I canceled it. And so I came off that and into this whole crazy, you know, Jeopardy two conferences and like, whoa. Um, so that set the stage <laughs> for big changes to come. Um, but yeah, so I met Marco and I had known each other on Twitter for a long time. We'd never met in person, but we knew a million people in common. He launched the magazine, I want to say like two or three days before 
Singleton Dur, I think. Um, yeah, which was his, his talk was about it. That's right. Yeah. So he was like the second or third week in October. And, um, you know, he already, tons of people were signing on. I think three or four of the people who wrote, or maybe all four of the people who wrote essays in the first issue were actually at Singleton. Um, Michael Sippy, uh, Rans at Repose, uh, Jason Snell, if he was issue one or two, uh, Guy English. Um, so it was a very interesting thing. And so he and I talked a bit there and um, met in person, which was great. And I'd already pitched him an article to because uh, I knew he was paying decently. And somewhere in there, he doubled the pay rates because he had enough subscriptions. He could pay what he really wanted to. Um, and uh, after I met him, I thought, this is a decent guy. Uh, he sent me a contract. The contract was fantastic. It was very writer-friendly. And uh, he's paying people well. And his goal was to pay people more if he could. And I thought, you know, I should see if he needs an editor. Because this is a lot of work for one guy. And he's already got Instapaper on his plate. Um, he's got a baby, he's a new baby. <laughs> and he's got the magazine that he just launched. He probably has other things I don't know about. And I said, hey, uh, I've been editing for you know 20 years in lots of different ways. And I'm looking for something to do. And uh, you know, do you need an editor? And he said, here's a list of 12 or something things he sent me. These are things that I have to do now. Um, I want to do these four, which included like art direction, a few other things. And I don't want to do these others. Can you do all these? And I looked at those and said, yeah, I can do like 11 of those and I can contract someone to, you know, I can contract a proofreader. I can do whatever, but, um, yeah, I can do all that. And he said, great, go ahead. Here's access to the CMS. Let's get going. And that was it. <laughs> That's a pretty dream stop. It was good. Well, we, we, this is the thing with Twitter that I come back to again and again is it's great for um, – I've made a ton of friends on on Twitter, and now I go to any city and I do you know I try, I do meetups, which I feel a little impersonal. I don't like to just say, hey, I'm glad I'm a big deal. I'm coming to town. You should meet me. It's more like there's no way for me to schedule with enough people, and I'm often in town briefly, so I'll try to set up something where I'm like, I will be at this place, and I know I will get a chance to talk to you. And some people, like old friends or you know people I really have something uh, like a real – like the strongest connection to not just an acquaintance, I'll set up a coffee or dinner, but I, I have no shortage of people. And it's so much fun. These are people that I've sometimes now spent years uh, getting to know online and, um, and get to meet them in person. And some now I've met multiple times. So uh, that's part of the, the basis there on a professional basis too, is there's people I trust because I've been talking to them or following them for years, I know how reliable the kind of person they are, how they react to things. And I think Marco and I came pre-vetted for each other. Um, he knew my work, and I knew the kind of person he was, and I think it turned out to be just right. He was exactly that person, <laughs> and I think I did the work he was hoping I would do. Uh, and, uh, and eventually, like we started on a, a small number of hours, and it just kept growing and growing because he was more ambitious, subscriptions increased, uh, and he was happy to hand it off. And, and I think he said a number of times... Um, you know, back when we made the transition that he probably handed off about 95% of the operations to me. Um, he was still doing the programming and servers and business side, but of the editorial side, uh, you know, he, I consulted him on articles we were assigning. He did the art direction and worked with um, Pacific Helm with Louis Mantia to do uh, covers. But um, really, I was running most of the editorial and editing and, and, um, and the rest of it from about issue two or three. So it was really early on. Some people think there was this Marco Glenn transition, and actually, it was it was very. We had a very small uh, pipeline of articles, so I started assigning stuff out um, relatively quickly in the in the history of the thing. And how long were you the editor of the magazine for? I I guess technically I still am, 
Oh, I don't know. Sure. Maybe I still, I don't. But it's, um, well, I, uh, let's see. So I started with him in late October, I want to say, before November 1st, uh, 2012. And then we finalized a sale agreement on June 1st, 2013, at which point I became the owner and publisher and bottle washer and business manager and accountant and art director and <laughs> everything else, but PHP programmer and, uh, and, but not iOS developer. I need people for that. But, uh, uh, that was the transition point. How did this decision come to be for you to buy the magazine? Did you approach Marco or did he approach you? I'm going to be more honest with you and your listeners than I've ever been before. Thank you, Glenn. The story is time to be told. Well, no, and Marco and I have talked about it in different ways. He, we, he was in the middle of so much that was going on that we didn't want to say, you know, I'll, I'll, this is the honest part is um, I knew Marco was losing interest. And he talked about it on your podcast, on other podcasts. Um, I was listening to him on shows while I was the editor thinking, I wonder if he wants to keep doing this. And it, it was partly, as we know now, it was the Instapaper uh, strain that, that was killing him. And this, yeah. his own personal mark of not being able to meet the needs of people using his product. He felt terrible about it. He's talked about it a lot since. And, and you can see Marco is, is pretty stoic out, you know, uh, puts up a, a strong front, but he's, you know, he's a very warm person and you can just see how much happier he is now. It's not like the Tumblr buyout isn't why he's happy. Cause that came later. It's the taking something off your plate that you don't feel you're meeting your own personal mark for what it should be. And that obviously was a, a, clearly a big relief for him. But um, I knew we were tooling along. I know we had subscriptions and we know we have come off the peak. We had this great peak in maybe January or February where it hit the top, where everybody who was piling in to see what it was came in and a bunch of those people left. So we were looking at it and it wasn't, the math wasn't bad then. It's not terrible now. And now I've got this Kickstarter we'll talk about and other stuff going on. Um, but I could tell that he he wasn't sure what was going to happen and he wasn't ready to shut it down. It wasn't that dire, but I knew he was looking for, it was clear from listening to him on podcasts even. I mean, we emailed a lot, but I was like, this guy needs a change. Something's going to happen because he didn't set out to produce a magazine. He set out to produce a great reading experience and a great app. And the magazine was a, a way to test that out. And he was happy enough to hand over uh, the editorial to me, and I was happy enough to do it. But I think we hit a point where I was like, okay, so what's the future? And he said, I don't really know. Like, I have other ideas I want to pursue. And I said, the obvious and logical thing is we should figure out if I could buy it from you and I'll just keep running it. He said, huh. And then it was, hmm. And then after a few emails, he's like, all right, let's work it out. And it was pretty much, again, easy guy. Marco Armand has a hilarious reputation to me because he is the easiest, most generous yep. guy in the world. I agree. Uh, and his public perception is because he makes actually takes a stance on things and says things. But um, so it was, you know, we spent some time figuring out the details, the money, and uh, the transition plan. And um, but you know, like he always does, he gave me access. You know, he set up a GitHub um, repository and he gave me access to the code before we'd sign paperwork. And um, I was in there making sure I could handle the PHP. I'm looking at the iOS code and. Did you know my own due diligence to make sure I felt like I could do what I needed to do, and then and then we had an agreement, and it was really um, that simple. He clearly he he hadn't told me he kept that podcast app idea pretty quiet. Only a few people knew for a really long time, and uh, so I knew there was something that he wanted to scratch uh, or an itch he wanted to scratch, and 
that's what he spent the time doing since then. But the timing was hilarious because I started talking to him uh, after the Instapaper deal, but before the Tumblr deal. So I knew that he was selling Instapapers. Like, oh, and you know, then he and I started talking, and we came pretty closely, you know, pretty quickly to a light. Yeah, let's make this happen. We'll figure out the details. And then uh, I think was it in the middle of May that the news leaked that Yahoo was considering buying Tumblr or had made an offer. I was the first person to forward an email. He apparently hadn't seen it yet. I was like, hey, well, this is good news for you, right? And he's like, holy cow, I haven't seen that. And uh, um, so I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm like, this is going to be funny. You're going to sold Instapaper, Tumblr's going to be bought, <laughs> and you'll sold a magazine. I'm like, ha, 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 won't that be amusing? And then that's a sort of, you know, essentially what played out. Do you think that that, that timing, um, was it good for you or bad for you? Like, did it, it did it shine the spotlight on Marco enough that it it sort of highlighted the fact that you were taking over, or do you think that potentially it because he do you know because he was going through such a transition and and he was basically changing everything that he did that maybe it, not so much of a spotlight was shone on the magazine during this period? Oh, I think it was good because it got the word out. I mean, I you know here's the thing that's funny about running a subscription publication um, that I'm not sure I expected is I knew marketing would have to be part of it. And I used to do some work in marketing um, back many years ago. And I have a, I know how direct mail works and direct marketing. I used to see early like email marketing campaigns and response rates. And I haven't done so much with it for, you know, say a decade, but I remember the principles. And I thought, I know how to market things. But the, the trouble right now is attention is so thinly divided that it is hard to get attention unless you can really have a huge platform to start with, or you can spend a ton of money, or you get really lucky. And then the magazine launched, people were watching you know, people were wondering what was going to happen with the newsstand. Marco fit in this great niche. He has a large following of his own. He has the amplification of having folks who trust him, like the John Grubers of the world, who then, um, like, uh, they will, anything that, that Marco does that's interesting, you know that a thousand sites, including some with huge traffic, are going to talk about it. And when his podcast app ships, it doesn't matter that there's a ton of podcast apps out there. Most of them are you know, various things to say about all of them. Like if he ships a really good one, which I can't imagine he won't because that's how it works, and it answers problems that haven't previously been solved, um, it's going to get a ton of attention even though there may be, you know, 50 podcast apps out there, some of whom spend huge amounts of venture capital to advertise, promote themselves, underwrite their costs. So Marco had this great pulpit when he launched the magazine. When we did the sale, I would say we didn't get lost in the shuffle. It was more like, oh, that's one of the things he runs. The promotion of it doesn't bring more subscribers in. People perceive the magazine as a iOS or maybe iPad only subscription thing meant only to be read on the tablet, even though it's since March it's been uh, you know web-based. I did more responsive design work when I took it over so that it works better on small devices and so forth. And has a it's easier to browse a bunch of stuff that I made changes to to make it uh, more webby but um, the pr- it's just hard to get people in so you have this bar of like oh what is it okay now I go someplace okay what do I do oh well there's a seven day trial I can read a little bit for free it's like okay now I've got this now I have to pay for the seven day trial now I'm a subscriber now maybe I'll cancel the seven day trial or no I'll stick with it and then every month Apple sends a reminder or we send a reminder that you've got a monthly subscription and people can cancel at that point. So there's a huge amount of friction and reminder that that surrounds subscribers. So getting a lot of 
attention is good in the sense that people find you, but what people do pulling the trigger to become a paid subscriber is still a very difficult proposition. And it's the last several months have influenced everything I'm about to do in terms of understanding what gets people to pay for content in a world in which so much is free, but in a world in which, in a world, sorry, in which, um, in a world in which content is all being put behind paywalls. And we're seeing that too. So there's this whole inflection point we're in the middle of, and I'm hoping to ride that wave through to a point where it makes sense. Long answer to your question, but it's, I think the attention was good, but we did not have enough places to let people take that attention and do something with it. The only thing people could do when they come to us is read some stuff for free or subscribe and there's nothing else and that is clearly not enough as a long-term business plan. I want to talk about some of the changes and those long-term plans uh, with you but before we do that I want to talk about our friends over at Squarespace. They are the only one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TallyHo12. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, designs, and making their support even more amazing. They have really beautiful templates that you can start building a website with, and they have tons of style options so you can adjust, tweak, and craft your own space online you can create your own home on the internet with squarespace they take care of hosting seo and they even make sure that your site looks fantastic on all devices as responsive web design is built right in to every squarespace template squarespace is so easy to use they have a drag and drop page building system that they call layout engine which is really cool but if you need any help with anything over at squarespace they have over 70 dedicated employees on their customer care team which are based in new york city squarespace care about all aspects of design they care about not only the way the templates look but they care about how the back end looks and they care about how their website looks too and if you go to squarespace.com you can see some really cool stuff that they've done using squarespace of course and it's got a bunch of videos and really really cool stuff squarespace have two brand new ios apps for their squarespace customers their squarespace blog which allows you to easily draft, post, schedule posts, review posts, as well as monitor and manage comments all on the go. It's integrated with Layout Engine, allowing you to easily format your pages. You can format text and markdown. You can tap and drag images around within all of your posts. And you can modify detailed post settings as well, all on the go. They also have Squarespace Metrics, which allows you to monitor website analytics, page views, unique visitor information, and they even have projections your statistics so you can see what they believe will be your traffic over the next day or week or whatever and they also have charts as well which are fun to look at they also have updated their uh, previous apps note and portfolio as well for ios 7 as i said earlier you can try out squarespace for free no credit card required to do so and if you decide to purchase their plans start at just eight dollars a month and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year Make sure that you get 10% off and help support the show by using the code TALLYHO12. That's T-A-L-L-Y-H-O-1-2. Thank you so much to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. So, Glenn, when you took over the magazine, um, you made you sort of brought in a crack team of people, like an A-team of designers um, and developers. Like, who, who are the people that you brought in to help you, and why did you choose them? Well, let's see. That's a, so Pacific Helm had already been working with Marco. They'd uh, uh, um, already been designing uh, the covers. Louis Mantia had been doing the covers, and now I'm blanking on his name. Not just Jesse Char, Louis Mantia, and who was the Brad third Ellis? person? Was, what's that? Brad Ellis. 
Brad Ellis. Brad Ellis had worked very closely with um, Marco on the app design and the web design. So they helped me. We had a bunch of um, conceptual conversations as I was working along. I got in. Um, I needed iOS developers because I'm not an iOS guy. Um, I'm a. I do a lot of um, scripting. I used to program a little in C, but I am not an objective C person. And I am at the point in my life where I. I've tried a few times to read up on it, and I think, you know, I could do this, but I would have to devote myself to it. And I simply don't have the time, and I don't think I'd be as good as, you know, real professionals do it all the time. So I've, I've decided to not attempt, among all the things I was doing, to also become an Objective-C programmer. And I contacted the aforementioned Guy English, uh, who has a small firm with Chris Parrish called Aged and Distilled, and they were happy to take on the modest amount of work um, that I need, and we've put out a few micro revisions, but have been talking. Um, I'll tell you more about the. This is the budgeting issue about you know the size of the publication we are about um, uh, a long feature list of things we want to do as we go, uh, and then um, I needed a managing editor because. I couldn't do this by myself, and Marco would hand off a bunch of stuff to me. I needed somebody else to hand off to, so I was able to hire a part-time managing editor, Brittany Shute, who is still working with me. She's tolerated me this long, which is good, and um, she is, works with the authors and does initial edits and you know manages stuff and does final reads for me, so I have another set of eyeballs and somebody else, you know, another set of hands who is um, just as professional and competent as I believe myself to be. Um, she's great. She wrote a piece uh, for me about pinball that was impeccable. Um, and this is not to criticize other writers. It's very hard to talk about one writer without feeling like you're insulting others. Uh, I'm a messy writer. I turn drafts in. I work with editors. and I try to put in something clean that could run as is, but you know, the final thing is often very different. Brittany gave me something which I've only seen a few times, which was uh, an, an impeccable draft of a story that needed practically nothing changed and we ran it as it is. It was just totally buttoned down. Um, and you can't do that every time either. I'll give her I'll give her crap by saying like the subsequent stories we had to do more work on, but they're great. They just this one was amazing. I'm like, all right, she has these managing editing she's talked about, you know, wanting to do more editing and um, it worked out to be a great partnership. And then I've been talking about doing a print book I talked about it with Marco and he wasn't as interested because it was a distraction from everything else he was doing and we know how much he was doing. So I started those plans right away and contacted an old friend of mine who used to work at one of the uh, major uh, magazine design firms in Manhattan, WBMG, um, my friend Jessica Simmons, who's a terrific designer, known for two decades and got her uh, and her firm, which is uh, co-run with her husband and um, they have some employees that do work with them to start working on design ideas there too. So tons of people um, because I felt like I, not only could I not do things by myself, I really, I needed to be able to, to hand off responsibility to people who just work independently. I mean, so it's a combination of things I'm not capable of doing and, and then just the hours in the day. Uh, so that was the plan. And so nobody, none of these are like, you know, massive contracts for, vast amounts of money. So I, um, so uh, Pacific Helm, I'm no longer working with Pacific Helm. It's a fine parting. We just, they're working with bigger clients and my needs are very, very, very tiny. So I'm talking to some folks who are doing uh, UI UX work and are going to uh, hopefully come on and help me with, the, with my minor needs there. And I took over designing the covers, which is super fun in any case. Beyond everything else, super fun. So uh um, but they did so much great work on the app, and they, you know, we did a whole bunch of work over the summer, uh, conceptual and some design sketches about moving forward, and and now that's the that's where I need to go from there. 
So that's I mean that's a lot of stuff that you did. Like you brought and you it's brought a in a people. real a real bunch of people to surround yourself with. I think I think that was a smart move because otherwise you probably would have just burnt out really quick. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know it's there is an issue of money. I mean I mentioned that before is that the magazine is not this you know massive profit center. It did very well in its early days, and as time's gone on, we've shrunk a little bit. I mean I'll be I've been frank about it elsewhere. I don't like to give out. Uh, numbers, but there's a you know the path we're taking is not this. Hey, we're throwing off money left and right, and I can take that vacation this year. It's more like head down, we can make this work. Um, but it means not having, not being able to say write a big check to uh, developers or designers and say just go do this thing. It means spending a lot of time planning and biting off small amounts of work to get done that will help with incremental improvements that will then result in benefits. So that's part of why. I turned to the Kickstarter. It's part of why I have a, a different model going forward. I mean, I should mention, you know, right now, I said earlier, there's a paywall. It's, we come out now, we're, in, we're an issue every other week, and it's you know, $1.99 a month for two or three issues, depending on the month you're in, and uh, about $20 a year and um, for 26 issues. And that's kind of been our primary modality until um, November. That was all we did. Um, and all the money came in 100% from people subscribing. And about 95% of that was from, there is from the App Store, about 5% from subscriptions that come in directly through um, our website, where you can, you can subscribe there and then use the iOS app as well, or vice versa. But most people come through the App Store um, entrance. But that's where all the money was coming from. And, um, and that, as I said before, finding new subscribers is tricky. It's a hard problem. And you've done some partnerships with Boing Boing and Medium as well, right? What, what do these look like for you? Well, these are both very interesting. The Boing Boing deal, we've, there's a ton of affinity between the kind of stories we want to write and the kind of audience they have and what they want to do. And over time, Boing Boing has become more featurey. I mean, they were a, you know, an early blog and for a long time the most popular blog and still among the most popular things that is you know, properly called a blog. And um, they've run more and more features, you know, longer articles independently reported or, or written directly for the site, not linked in from elsewhere. And uh, so they're on a path to do more of that and have, have, they've talked a bit about that publicly, that that's their direction. Um, and we talked for a bit about how we could work together because I've known a lot of the people involved for, for years or a decade or more. Um, I write for them. Um, I've written a number of features for them. And uh, I just love the people. And so we, we ultimately decided to sort of test the waters of what we could do by me providing essentially free content that they're running. So I'm put it, posting a feature. Uh, we try, it depends on the, on the time that's going on. But we're more or less doing a, taking one of the features that we have in our uh, issue. Um, we make one of the five features free every issue. That's been kind of the plan for a while. And uh, we take that and we publish that on Boing Boing. And um, it's partly to see what people respond to. It's partly to see if there's a path from there to people saying, oh, this is great. I want to see more stuff like this. Oh, these guys have a fee. Well, I'll subscribe. And um, I'll be honest, it's, uh, it's worked out well in the sense that the articles that get good attention at Boing Boing and they get a really great response. We ran a piece um, about Dutch, uh, the Dutch Santa Claus, Sinterklaas, and the whole Dutch celebration of, uh, of St. Nicholas, um, which is fascinating and bizarre to, um, to most other people on the planet who celebrate a sort of American-style Christmas or something you know, similar to it, a UK-style Christmas. The Dutch celebration is totally 
different and baffling. And so a friend of mine uh, who's a terrific writer and uh, Canadian who moved to, to uh, the Netherlands, married to a Dutch fellow, has four kids. She read this great piece about it and looked at some of the racial implications and what it's like to celebrate it as an outsider and, and so forth. And that went up on Boing Boing and it had like, I don't know, a hundred comments. It's the conversation went on and on and on and on and on. We don't have comments at the magazine. That's that's partly was Mar- Marco's predilection, and it still feel like it's not what I want to do at the moment. Um, but it was, so it's great to take these pieces into a different forum uh, and see how people respond. And it was generally a pretty civil discussion that went on and on and on and on. So the downside is Boing Boing readers don't seem to be coming to subscribe. They like the articles we post. We get a nice response. We get sometimes, like I say, lots of comments or compliments or forwards or whatever, but they don't come and subscribe because, again, that bar is very high um, to get people to come and say, I'm going to pay a recurring amount forever, or I'm going to pay 20 bucks for what I'm seeing now. I'm going to pay 20 bucks for a year of this. Um, these are these are hard things to sell. And um, the boing, well, the lesson I learned from Boing Boing is, in fact, that is even with a very large number of readers who really like the material we're publishing, it's still hard to get them to convert to paid subscribers. What about Medium? Medium is kind of a different deal. I went to them to see how to use their platform because I was curious about publishing uh, some stuff there, you know, archive pieces or whatever, and they actually offered me a, a nice deal, which they're doing with a few other publications. Um, Medium is like three different things. I don't know if this has been gone over well enough elsewhere, but like Medium is a publishing platform that anyone can use almost like a blog, but they also have an internal editorial operation where they're hiring writers and cartoonists uh, or contracting with them to um, produce feature work or, or short pieces. And then the thing I'm involved with is where they're partnering with publications and paying us based partly on traffic and partly on other factors or paying us to put new content up because Medium is an experiment in figuring out what people will read. And they're very simplified too. Medium is very magazine-like in that uh, the presentation is intended to not distract from the words or images. They try to not throw cruft in there. There's no ads. Um, you can't do very much formatting. It's a very restricted environment, and constraints often produce better results. So that is now a very minor revenue stream for us, but we're looking into how much traffic we can build there as an alternative because we get rewarded for it um, as they put money into understanding what people will read. And for whatever their ultimate business model is, is to understand that and then figure out how to make money off it. And they know and they talk a lot um, about how conventional advertising, you know, banner ads, and the like, uh, interstitials, all that stuff, you know, that's not the future. Those aren't working. Those are working more and more poorly over time. And, and anyone you talk to can find, except in very specific industries or very specific, you know, verticals where they have um, an audience that's really motivated to spend a lot of money, that advertising is not, you have to have so much traffic to make online ads work, uh, banner ads and the like, that it's not the direction. So I love that Medium is putting money into it. And the, the goal there, my goal is often to maximize as much payment to the authors as possible. And I would say that and other contributors. And I think, I don't know if I give you an exact number, but I think like between 50 and 60% of all the revenue that comes in um, goes to contributors. And another hunk, you know, there's a hunk for tax and there's a hunk for um uh, you know, Brittany and other editing, proofreading, um, and some technical stuff. And, you know, there's, there's not a ton left over for me at this point because this is a, um, you know, it's effectively a startup. 
So it's paying its bills, and um, I make my living through a variety of means, but the medium thing is the same thing. I've got a minimum guarantee from them of a certain amount, and I'm paying most of that out to authors so I can pay them enough to write new, shorter, original work that goes up on Medium and mix that up with archive pieces that we've already published um, to try to crack the code there and see, again, they're experimenting, but we're also experimenting, too, to see what people want. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun. I love their platform. Um, and uh, and they are continuously, they have a ton of programmers, and they are continuously updating what they do as well. In the aggregate, then, are your, your content creators, are they benefiting from these new platforms because there's more places for them to contribute to the magazine? Yeah, I I. Uh, I want to say yes. I mean, here's the funny part. So the so um, we pay. You know, we, our rates are posted. You can go to our pitch guide. It's um, I think it's slash pitch. Or you go to you can go to our fac and find which is slash fac. And there's a pitch guide. It says here's the kind of stuff we're looking for. Here's what you should do. And here's our rates. So um, we pay five hundred dollars for essays. We pay that that don't require reporting. Um, we pay eight hundred dollars for reported pieces, and then often can kick in you know a little bit for expenses, and we'll pay for photos. So some people can make. Uh, you know, two hundred to even six hundred dollars above that rate, although rarely that high. Um, and that's not bad. It's not great for what we're asking, which is fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred words and a fairly serious editing process. And and um, it's involved. We're trying to be as good as any publication about our process from the writer turning in a draft to the final thing. And uh, um, so we pay reasonably well. So, for instance, the Boing Boing situation, that's a, you know, I'll just be honest, say there's not a, a no payment deal. We're, we're experimenting on both sides. We get the exposure. They get additional features that the readers can read, which makes their site, you know, more interesting uh, by a tiny fraction because we're a tiny fraction of what they publish. Um, and right now I'm not paying the writers more for that. But, you know, this is that it's good exposure argument. Boing Boing is good exposure for writers because they've already been paid. So we've already paid them their fee. We've, you know, we only take 60 days exclusive rights. So they could resell or republish after 60 days. And we're getting their piece broader exposure, which is okay since we paid. If we hadn't paid, I'd feel terrible. Or if Boing Boing was paying us and we were passing none of it along, I'd feel terrible. But in this case, I think it actually is a good situation. Um, with Medium, I'm looking at, uh, we get statistics. So if any of our archive pieces go through the roof, I will be happy to write some additional checks to people for you know something they wrote six months ago. If it suddenly gets a ton of traffic and um, that results in some additional money coming in, then I'm going to be delighted Delighted. The best thing I do is write checks to people. Hmm. It means <laughs> there's a good reason, right? What's that? It means there's a good reason. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if money's coming in, I'm happy to have it have it go out. And so, you know, we I, I want to share the wealth. It's like I don't want to be I'm not trying to become some kind of publishing magnet. I don't have special wisdom. I'm uh been a working writer for a long time. Now I'm a working editor and I'm trying to make this into a sustainable profession for myself where um, I'm not subsidizing it from other parts of my life to make it work. And I'm trying to make it a consistent and good to well-paying outlet for the best writers out there who write narrative nonfiction work um, and who I can afford. I mean, there's tiers. There's people who get four times what I can pay or more. Um, but it's a very small number, and there's a very small number of places they can publish, you know, like the New Yorker Atlantic. Um, so... Uh, I'm trying to provide a mid-tier outfit for, uh, outlet for the vast majority of you know top-notch writers who can't get into this tiny, tiny number of slots in the publications that pay you know extremely well. 
because that's where I've been. I've been in that position for a long time myself as a writer. So I want to talk about your Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, let's take a little break. That's what that's what we call tease in the industry. <laughs> So I want to take a quick moment to thank our friends over at Shutterstock.com, which is where you're going to find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and over 1 million video clips. You can start your search over at Shutterstock to find the perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find media from across the world to suit your project. You can choose between image packs, monthly subscription packages, or... If you need just one image for a blog or a mock-up or some sort of project that you're after, you can do that too. You can choose whatever fits your needs. You never have to compromise. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you're guaranteed to find something new since they add over 20,000 new images every day and 12,000 new images every week. And it's more affordable than you think. They don't charge you extra for large files. You can download any image in any size and you pay just one price. As you're searching around over at Shutterstock, you can easily curate and share your pictures via lightboxes. So you choose your favorite pictures and videos and add them to your own lightbox gallery as you search. And you can review them all at the end and choose the ones that you want to purchase. They even have an iPad app if you want to do this too. Shutterstock have enhanced license access if you need it, if you need to run image in, in print and things like that. They can help you with that. They also have 24-hour support during the week. And they also have account reps that can be dedicated to you if you need them who can answer absolutely any question that you have as well as images and videos they have a huge library of vectors icons and infographic templates too so just about any type of media you need you can find over at shutterstock go sign up for a free browser account now at shutterstock.com no credit card needed to do this and when you find the images you like and decide to purchase you want to use the offer code cmd one two one three. So that's command twelve thirteen. That's going to get you twenty five percent off any package you put together at Shutterstock.com. Thank you so much to Shutterstock for sponsoring Command Space and supporting all of Five by Five. So, just about a month ago, <laughs> you launched a Kickstarter campaign. This Kickstarter campaign ends as we record, which today is the eighteenth of December two thousand and thirteen. This campaign ends tomorrow. Um, we will get 24 hours from as we record it it's almost exactly 24 hours and 10 minutes Just from as we speak I planned all of this I've, you were brilliant Mike this is what I do so what is the Kickstarter campaign for what are, what, what are you Kickstartering for well I have I have an, an explicit and an implicit purpose <laughs> the explicit thing is it's a book I want to make a, a thing in of atoms that people can purchase as a one-time thing without a subscription. So um, we talked about this for a while. I mean, I, again, I tried to convince Marco, but it, it was a distraction. Something different. It involves a lot of management and uh, and money. And I've been planning for a long time with these designers of mine. We've gone through some prototype work to see how it would work and and start getting bids from printers to make sure it would all work out. And so I kept a spreadsheet and. Um, kept putting numbers in and talking to designers and talking to authors and looking at things and trying to come up with it. And I finally said, you know, this is doable. I was hoping to get the goal down to $40,000, but I was, I was how to bring it to um, 48000 which was a, a very carefully chosen number. It was not, you know, 2000 less than fifty. It was like 48000 would allow us to cover 100% of the expense of printing really nice hardcover books 
creating ebooks, doing some you know high level awards, some fine art prints and t-shirts and things, pull all that together and be left with essentially zero dollars at the end, but with an ebook to sell forever and some quantity of print books that were not spoken for as um, rewards during the Kickstarter. And those print books would be where essentially most of the profit came from, uh, print books and the ebook sales would be where the profit came from from the project. But I wanted to come up with a number where, um, you know, I personally, I as the corporation that owns the magazine, didn't have to be paid for my time. And now I know a lot of projects, that's one of the things people are trying to raise is money to pay for their time to do the project, which is which is terrific. I feel like I had enough resources that I didn't want to go that route. I didn't want to say, okay, I need sixty thousand dollars because you know expense is forty eight grand and twelve grand of that goes, you know, to my overhead of of devoting time or running the business or whatever time away from things I have to contract out. So I came up with the least <laughs> slowest possible number that would have a a subsequent benefit. Uh, and again, all everyone gets paid. So the designers are professionals; they get paid, of course. The printer gets paid, U.S. Post Office and regional post offices get paid, and um, and all the contributors, the writers, artists, um, and photographers, all get reprint fees. They're modest. I'd set them as high as I could while making all the other parameters work. And I have stretch goals that if we reach some of them, I'd be able to pay either bring more people in or pay more. It doesn't look like we're going to reach the stretch goal that let me bump up. Um, the payment, but uh, but everyone involved gets a uh, you know about uh, a fraction of what they got the first time around, but it's additional payment for work they've already done, which is was important to me too. So, why a print book? Like, isn't print dead? <laughs> it's funny. So, in America, at least, and in a bunch of other countries, the number of books that are sold every year continues to go up. It, it never actually dropped. It tapered off. Uh, and we're starting to finally see, I think, some erosion of print sales uh, with um, electronic book sales really starting to take a bite out of the more of the bestsellers than anything else. Uh, but um, there, there are more, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, th- I think it just tapered off. But there's still like billions of books sold. And there are more different books sold. It used to be this very, very uh, big head and long tail. Um, the ease of printing books in small quantities uh, and making money off selling even hundreds or to thousands of books means that uh, there are hundreds of thousands of books produced each year as opposed to you know tens of thousands that sell any copies as, as of like 20 years ago. So um, it's not that weird to do a book and it's, been more, it's more affordable than ever to do very small quantities of high quality books uh, because the costs have come down because digital technology has improved everything including offset printing. So I'd heard from people, I'd heard from a lot of readers, including those who had unsubscribed because they found five features every two weeks to be even too much for them to keep up with, with everything else they did, that they said, you know, if you ever do a book, let me know. And I said, you know, ebook or print book? They're like, both. I'd, you know, I'd buy a print book. Um, doing a print book lets us go into bookstores. Uh, I'll be looking into distribution because bookstores will take Books like this, I can be on Amazon as a print book. A print book is a great gift. Ebooks you can give, but it's sort of a different thing. And I wanted it to be a hardcover book, so it felt more like a keepsake. And the design will be such that it'll take advantage of of being a print book. It'll there'll be four color in it, not throughout, but through a big chunk of it. There'll be bleeds so that you know it's the images fill the pages, so you get that immersive feeling. Um, it's not just going to be you know something that looks like something you pulled off the newsstand. It's going to be a solid good book that you'll, you'll be happy to buy like any other book. So I, I felt like if I couldn't do that, 
it didn't make sense to do a simple book because then it didn't feel like enough of an event. People wouldn't be as interested in it. And it didn't feel like to me that this would give people a a way to support the publication if they wanted to just support it. You know, some people just want the book. Some people want to support what we're doing. They want to support an independent publication, and the book is the reward. So I wanted the reward to be nice, um, and that's how that all came about. Now, of course, there's an ebook, and you know, being in England, you know that shipping overseas shipping it went up hugely this last January. Um, I think there was some new international accord. Uh, so a lot of people I know who did Kickstarters in 2012 were very unhappy when they were fulfilling them in 2013 and found the shipping costs had gone up remarkably. So um, we put in $15 for international shipping price, which killed me for a book that's going to weigh like a pound. Um, but it may wind up with all the overhead of shipping that we may not actually, it may have cost us slightly more than that. I'm not sure yet, but it certainly won't cost us much less. Um, so that's a problem. So for our overseas friends, we are um, friends outside the United States. We've been, <laughs> we've made you know the ebook edition, DRM free. It'll come in multiple formats. Read it on every on every device, and um, that's that's the plan there. But a print a print book seemed like something real and palpable people could hold on to and feel like they'd been involved in something real. Where an electronic edition by itself would just be, well, why did you need to fund that? Why did you need money to put out an ebook? It's like, well, you know, you're right. We could fund an ebook, but a print book. There's so much more overhead, preparation, and cost it made sense to kind of come out there and say, we have this thing. This is part of our new direction. Um, help us get there and get a beautiful book. I, uh, I bought the, the, paper, the, the print book. You're awesome. Because You're awesome. if I was going to do this, I wanted it to be physical. <laughs> like, because, you know, the ebook, of course, is going to look beautiful. I'm sure, you know, you, you've got some images and stuff. But, you know, I, have, I, I can get uh, access to them in a digital format already. Um, I wanted the physical thing. I wanted the, the coffee table book. You know that that was kind of what I what I wanted. Um, that was kind of our thinking. Was that there's something wonderful about something that's that you hold in your hands and it's real. There's also the gift aspect, as we'd heard from a lot of people, and, and that's actually part of the Kickstarter in a different way. Is a lot of people want to give the gift of the magazine. They like it, and you can't go to somebody else and say you should subscribe to this, or you do and they don't because they're not going to pay the money, and you're trying to talk them into it. We have a lot of recommenders in our crowd. <laughs> and So this is a way someone can buy a book and give it to someone else. Well, of course be selling it after the Kickstarter too. So people didn't want to come in at this essentially, you know, quasi speculative basis, or maybe they don't like Kickstarter. They don't want to give their credit card. Who knows? There's all these reasons why people do not do crowdfunding. Lots of reasons. They don't want to be part of the crowd. They don't want their name published as a backer, all kinds of things. So the, the campaign um, will sell pre-orders and it's possible people will buy them. You know, our, our delivery date is February. People will buy them and give them as gifts um, then too. But, uh, uh, the other part of that is we haven't had gift subscriptions for the magazine itself for the electronic edition, and I'm adding that. So when the Kickstarter is over um, tomorrow, we send it a we'll send out a survey to people to get all their information, and I was offering a discounted electronic one year subscription, um, and that'll be something that we add as an option too. Now we're during the Kickstarter campaign is fifteen dollars. Our normal price is twenty. I'll probably do a Christmas, you know, end of year special where it's like seventeen fifty for a few weeks when we launch it, so that people can give the gift and not tell people to do it. Look, it's here. I'm giving you. Go, here's the magazine. You can sign up for this mailing list, and and here's the website and log in, and it's free. It's for it's my gift to you, right? And they can do it before the holiday season. Um, but we definitely heard from people who wanted to be able to share it, and there was just no easy way to do it before, and so that's part of this. 
How has the funding process been so far? Have you enjoyed it? Has it been hell? Has it been a roller coaster <laughs> between the two? Has it, has it been, have I enjoyed it? Yes, yes, all of that. Um, so I have been writing as a journalist about Kickstarter since 2010. I wrote an economist piece that ran, I think, in like June of 2010 in the Technology Quarterly print section. And um, I've been sort of obsessed by it ever since. And so I've talked to a bazillion people who've run successful campaigns. I've interviewed um, uh, Yancey Strickler, who's now the CEO, who's one of the co-founders and just got kind of moved into the CEO position recently a bunch of times. I, um, I, I just think it's a wonderful, you know, I started a podcast for crying out loud that's sort of about how do you, one of the legs of the podcast is how do you do funding for stuff you want to do on your own? And crowdfunding is a big piece of it. Not everyone I have on uh, does crowdfunding, but almost everyone does in some form, even if it's something they run on their own site, not through Indiegogo or, or Kickstarter. So I'll be honest too here, I'm telling you all these secrets, not really that's a secret, is um, I wanted to be involved in something that succeeded. I had a failed one. I wanted to do one that succeeded. I wanted to be involved in this from a participant standpoint so I can write about it more effectively because I believe it's a substantial change in the future of, of arts and creative funding. And we've already seen that given that Kickstarter's on track to pump, I don't know what it's going to be this year, like $300 million or something into way more than that this year into all these independent projects and a few of them get a few million dollars each but like 40,000 of them are getting you know under $5,000 each so it's a it's a it's a whole different change so I want to be part of that I want to be on the inside and know how it goes that said was it a joyful thing I I knew that most kickstarters most Kickstarters that succeed do not have a straight upward line. You don't start from zero and people fund it steadily from day one to day whatever your endpoint is. I knew that. It was still a shock. We did, our goal was $48,000. We did $16,000 almost to the dollar in the first 24 hours and then it stopped. It was when like you, a clock went off. When you say it stopped, <laughs> are we talking like people just stopped funding or was it a trickle? Like. It went to the slowest. It was coming in so fast. I have a Kickstarter app installed on my iPhone that the thing was just con and I didn't have it beam binging at me, but it would just light up the home screen or the, the standby screen. And I just look over there, like, you know, just constantly, practically be scrolling down with people, hundreds of people over the course of 24 hours. And then almost exactly 24 hours in, people just said, oh, okay, it's funded enough. So it didn't, the motivation went off. We hit 33%, 24 hours, and then boom. And this was in America, we were going into Thanksgiving, so I launched it on a Thursday at, uh, or no, I'm sorry, a Wednesday at about uh, 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And so by 4 p.m. Thursday, we're already getting into Thanksgiving week where people start to leave. So people have left work for the day on the East Coast. <clears throat> Friday, they're not paying attention. Then a lot of people take Thanksgiving off or they're just, it's this weird week. So it just tapered off and we brought in a few thousand dollars over a week. Then Thanksgiving is over. And I start doing the promotion again. I mean, I've been talking to people during Thanksgiving week, little by little. But, you know, Thanksgiving week's over, and I'm like, oh, okay, here's when people come in. And again, it just sort of trickled along. Now, here's the thing I knew. The thing I knew is most Kickstarter graphs do exactly this. You have this big start. The first 24 to 48 hours are huge if it's going to succeed. Then there's this long tapering thing in the middle because there's no, no um, feeling of, oh, my God, we have to do this. For those people, they come in, they look at, oh, okay, well, I'll come back to it, whatever. There's a remind me button in Kickstarter where you can get an email two days before the project um, is over. 
and it reminds you, hey, you wanted to back this, come take a look. Um, so I knew that would happen. But even then, you're still like, oh my God, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I wanted to hit 24% or 50%, $24,000 because the statistical analysis of successful Kickstarter campaigns done by a number of different people, you can find charts of this all over the place, show that 50% is, it's not exactly a magic number, but 97% of campaigns that get to halfway to their total also go on to reach 100% or more of funding. Is that by a certain point? It's by, well, it's by 50%. I mean, I shouldn't say that. it tapers up. Like the, the numbers that Kickstarter puts out is I believe it's something like 20% of all Kickstarter projects that are launched uh, never get a single bid, never get a single pledge. Mm-hmm. So people post it and their mother doesn't even bid. They're, you know, children, whatever. They're, no, they're friends. They don't even, nobody bids, right? Nobody puts a pledge in. So that's wild. I mean, that's crazy to begin with. You're like, you went through all this trouble and you get no pledges because Kickstarter doesn't, they filter on the basis of guidelines. They don't filter on basis of whether the project is good or not. And they give you advice uh, if you need it. But they don't, they don't say this is a terrible idea. They just say, well, it doesn't meet our guidelines or it's impractical or whatever. Um, and now this number may be old, but it used to be that 20% of projects also only got, never exceeded like 20% of their funding. It was some very low number. So you already have of 100% of Kickstarter projects that are done, 40% go nowhere, Right. 44% of Kickstarter projects fund. So there's this middle ground of like 16% that get a reasonable amount of money, but they never reach 100% for whatever reason. They're too ambitious. They, they, don't, get to, they don't get enough momentum. They lose interest. They, can't, they don't have enough people of the right type to back it. So it's a relatively small number that have some momentum and don't succeed. And the further along that curve you go, when you get closer and closer to 50%, that's sort of for a project of under $100,000, uh, and the lower dollar amount of the project, the more likely you are to succeed as you reach these percentage thresholds. So it goes up faster for cheap, lower, pro- like a $10,000 project is very likely to succeed if it reaches 40% of funding. At my level, uh, once you hit 50%, it's not exactly a, a flashover point, but it's a really, really strong indication associated with other projects that have done this before that you will reach funding. I knew all this. It was still nail-biting. <laughs> so with 11 days to go um, you're at 50% of your goal and you decide yeah. to start production so you're not funded but you start production did you have a plan because obviously you were confident right you, your statistics yeah. showed you were confident you were confident in the statistics but did you have a plan for if the book did not meet funding what you were going to do yeah I had some I had some at least a plan B and maybe a plan C which is when we hit 50% on was it December 7th um you know, as it stands, I said I'm going to go sign contracts, and I haven't signed contracts yet because I already have a contract with my design firm. I got them started, so their their dollar is clicking. I've got other people in proofreader going. I've got some other, um, you know, T-shirts are going to be made. There's like all these things that are getting prepped to happen. Um, the printer we haven't signed a contract with yet because they don't need one yet, and we're finalizing details. But I was like, I'm I'm ready to do it, and like, oh, okay, we don't have to do it yet, but like, we'll get this finalized, and then I will sign the contract. Um, so, uh, but, you know, essentially just said to everybody, we're, we're going, let's make it happen. And uh, by that point, we had, um, the, the whole project was predicated, my budget was predicated on the idea that we probably needed about 1,500 backers. Um, we need to sell, as it stands, we're only going to have about 1,000 books committed as part of the project. And I thought it would be higher. So that means there'll be a little more expense per book. 
than I expected, but I don't have to print as many books as I expected, so there's more cash left over to print more copies to sell later or to upgrade the hardcover binding or to do some other things I want to do. When I get the final printing number and shipping dollar amount, I will be able to shift around some resources and maybe it's possible I could pay the writers slightly more. I got lots of little things I can do because I built in a margin of error too, of course, so I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't run up short. So <laughs> that said, 50% through, we had about 750 people committed, most of them committing to buy a book, a hardcover book, and some just committing to an ebook. My plan B was if we didn't reach the top number, that number of people committed, I could go back to those people. Kickstarter lets you email people through their update process. You don't get their email addresses. You can send an update and you can send it so it only goes to people who backed it, even if the project didn't succeed. So I could go to those people. Let's say we reached 30 grand and it sputtered and didn't happen. Well, I'd be disappointed. But I go back to those folks and say, you know, we still want to make the ebook version. And if you'll pre-order, I'm set up a site, come here and pre-order 10 bucks, and I could promote that widely and maybe reach enough money to fund the design and other process to produce the ebook version. So that was my backup. If we'd gotten further along and we still couldn't fund the hardcover, I was going to uh, come back, back, back with the offer of a less expensive paperback version that could have the same design and so forth, but we'd lower the printing costs by you know, several dollars a book and make that feasible and the shipping costs. So I had some backup plans as we went, but um, as it turned out, it kind of worked out okay. So you've gone through this procedure, and congratulations. <laughs> it's like surgery, right? Yeah. <laughs> Procedure's maybe the wrong, maybe the right word. So mm-hmm. you're currently sitting at uh, $51,716 against the $48,000 goal, and you've got 23 yeah. hours to go, so congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, what was the feeling like? Can you put it into words when you, when you hit 48000 yesterday? Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you, I was watching it. I knew, okay, so I'm watching it go up. Like, so I'll tell you the two, there's, there was one inflection point, which was um, the, uh, again, this is always so funny to me. John Gruber is one of the um, like, most supportive and generous people I ever work with. I feel like he spends most of his time promoting the interests of uh, the little guy, of independent yeah. people, of creative people. And it's funny because I often get feedback say, like, John Gruber is that guy, you know, whatever. I'm like, no, no, it's like, he may be attacking company X or he may have a quibble with Apple or whatever, but that's the big company stuff. And they sometimes don't see this. I said, you know, can I come on to talk show and talk about the newsstand? And he's like, yeah, let's talk about it. Cause there's all this stuff going on with Apple newsstand. And he got me on and we spent two hours talking about the newsstand, the Kickstarter, electronic publishing. I had a great time. John has this background and, you know, he worked for a newspaper at one point. Um, we had a great discussion. I got incredibly positive feedback about it. And, well, that helps. He has a lot of listeners and a lot of readers of his site. And that was the turning point is the show came out and the, it just really started to climb up very rapidly. The curve went from sort of basically flat to up. And then, um, so that was great. And I'm like, all right, it's more and more likely we're going to fund. I'm still waiting for that big boost at the end. And then something happened on Monday. This is Wednesday as recorded. Uh, people woke up and said, oh my God, the thing isn't funded yet. This is the last week. So everybody in the world I know posted, emailed, talked to relatives, Facebook, blah, I don't know, like everything. And people who I didn't even know were following it, um, you know, some co- people are in company, like whatever, everybody in the world said something about this. So you've got to go make this happen. And money flooded in like Ahead of where I thought, I thought we'd hit this in the last 24 hours. So I'm watching the thing go crazy. I go to bed on Tuesday or on a Monday night, I wake up, I'm like, we are almost there. We're almost at that point. 
and he gets to 46 something and I'm tweeting I'm like we're really there you know we have all we need to do is raise uh, you know another 1700 and then someone tweets me hey you just went over I'm like what and I go over someone put $2000 in the kitty to take us over the top and I'm like well I don't want to I know who it is I don't want to tweet it because and then some then I two things are pointed out one is all the pledges are public like you can see the registered name and the other is Mailchimp out of themselves they're they support so many creative endeavors. Um, they sponsored my podcast a couple times in the in the past, but they're not a current sponsor. And they just wanted to put it over the top, so they they did, and it was pretty neat because suddenly it's like, oh my god, it's no longer like biting nails. Are we going to get there? We have X hours. It's over, and oh, I just you know, I tweeted wow 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 wow, and um, then I went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's what I did. I got a lot of advice from my friend Dean Putney, who did a very successful uh, book Kickstarter just a few months ago, and had studied this intensively. And he said, okay, well, now now go back and tell them what the next thing is, because I already had some stretch goals. I'd set a 55 grand goal after talking to the designers and, and looking at some, some of the budget figures where um, I didn't have this as an original stretch goal, but I set it like a week or so ago. 55 grand, I can bring in about 10 or 12 more articles, about 10 more writers, and make the ebook 300 pages. The print book, we can't afford to get it bigger, but the ebook can be bigger, which means more people get paid, which is great. Um, and I can definitely uh, get a fancier hardcover binding than I would have otherwise. We're going to go with something that was fine, would be perfectly fine, but I wanted something a little bit nicer, and uh, this will let us do that. So we're at almost at $52,000 now, 23 hours to go. If we hit 55 grand, I can do that. If not, I will do some kind of hybrid of that because. Um, I can probably upgrade the hardcover binding and uh, and maybe slip a few more stories into the into the ebook version, but we'll do something. Um, but it's it's really nice to have a margin because now uh, if I have any unexpected expenses that go over and above my budget already, then I've got it covered, or we can shift it into you know nicer outcomes. So, Glenn, congratulations again. Tell people Thank where they can you. go. I mean, some people will hear this, I'm sure, before. Uh, the the project is up. So, um, is there a is there a easy way for people to find out, you know, about the Kickstarter project? Like, is there an easy way to, oh, yeah. to send them to? You know, Kickstarter dot com and search on the magazine. We come up, which is nice. And um, I'll be writing some blog posts about the kind of great analytics that Kickstarter gives you about where stuff originates and turns into pledges. They give you some really nice numbers uh, breakdowns. So that's one way. Or the dash magazine dot org slash book will just redirect you to the Kickstarter. And I'll open a store. Like this is the thing. Right now we have just a subscription. When the Kickstarter is over, there'll be a way to pre-order the the book at a uh, like sort of the normal price, the ebook, the print book, um, and subscriptions. Uh, that's the post Kickstarter plan is to open all that up to everybody at what you know sort of an ongoing retail price will be. Um, probably discounted a bit for the holidays again still, but um, all the Kickstarter folks got the advantage of being early adopters, so they, they save. You save money by coming in early, but, um, but uh, that's, this is our new direction, is we're going to sell stuff you can just come in and buy and not have to pay for on a recurring basis. It's very exciting. And what about you? Where can people um, keep in touch with you and what you're up to? At Glenn F on Twitter, G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank, is the best place. I have a website at glennf.com also, but I'm mostly found on Twitter. I think that's um, it's like a, a, a home away from home for me. Wait, do you tweet? I uh, Sometimes, Mike. Occasionally. Oh, really? Only, 
Only several hundred times a day? <laughs> Not very much, is it? Um, I noticed this when I was adding you into the show notes. Uh, Glenn's current Twitter count is 182,502 oh tweets since August 2007. I, I always make the disclaimer, I talk to people on Twitter, so these aren't all public, quasi-public yeah. tweets. That includes a lot of tweets that start with an at sign. So I'm talking with someone yes, and everyone on my feed doesn't see it. So I'm, there is a little exactly bit of that, but that's I, I, Twitter for me is the, is the best water cooler in the world. And I, I may abuse my water cooler privileges a little bit. Hey, well, <laughs> we love you. So you keep, you keep doing what you're doing. Thank, Glenn, you. thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure having you. I have to have you back on again uh, sometime in the, in the future because there's, there's so much stuff about you um, that I've not even scratch the surface on we've i'll be back i'll be back anytime and uh when and you have your that print book in your hot little hands then uh we can talk about what books smell like and uh, ink and so forth and you have a <laughs> podcast of your own it's true i do um it's called the new disruptors you can find it at actually we're part of a uh, boing boing has assembled a small array of uh podcasts or i have a website which is new disrupt.org which is a little joke new disrupt org I'm funny. <laughs> I uh, try to find a good domain name these days. What can you do? Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's been it's been fun. We have some overlap in guests. But we talk mm-hmm. about things from different aspects. It's kind of fascinating. I was looking at your list, and it's it's we're both looking for independent creative people doing cool stuff. And so I stray off into music and arts and and publishing and so forth. But there's a really strong overlap in the in the creative publishing and um, software. Uh, development side. Yeah, we we have very similar guest lists. Uh, mm. I think people would enjoy both of our shows. So, well, you got to get Sir Mix a lot on, and then we'll have then we'll be in parody. <laughs> He's a nice guy. I'll do what I can. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. If you'd like to catch up with the show notes for today, go to five by five tv slash cmdspace slash seventy five. My name is Mike Hurley. I'm at imike. I m y k e. And of course, we're not taking next week off. There will be another episode of Command Space next week because that's the kind of person I am. I've already recorded it. Believe that, ladies and gentlemen, for very, very few times of our pre-recorded episodes, but I have an excellent episode of a very fantastic guest for you next week. Um, and it will maybe come out Tuesday or Thursday. I, I won't I won't burden you to listen to the show on Christmas Day. So have a very, very happy holidays, however you celebrate them. Um, and I will speak to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.